Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. This morning as we continue our travels through the book of Revelation and think about God's end game, one of the things that you will notice as you think about God being on the move in all of history, how he's at work in our world today, as we see what he lays out for the future, you notice it's like God's on a chessboard and he's moving his pieces strategically ready to checkmate all evil and all wickedness and win the game forever. And you think about all the great stories, whether it's Lord of the Rings or or, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia or even a lot of the stories involved in the Game of Thrones in our culture today, it's all about people moving and strategy and ideas of winning and conquering and being conquered and such. And they're a picture of of the great battle, the great game of life that ultimately God is moving to win. Jesus wins and he's going to defeat evil and wickedness and sin and death and the devil once and for all. When we get to chapter 19, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation this year. When we get to chapter 19, we see the final events that are involved when Jesus actually returns, when he actually comes in a bodily form and makes his presence felt here on earth. And we're going to see several things that take place when he arrives. Now, I know a lot of us, we think about the coming of Christ and we think about the rapture and whatever your beliefs are about the rapture, whether it's before or in the middle of or after the tribulation, that's not really the issue what we're talking about here. Revelation doesn't really even address that. But it does talk about Christ returning and coming in power and glory and setting up his kingdom on earth. And when he does that, two big things happen. And those two things are like what he does for believers and people who belong to him and what he does for the wicked. And what he does for believers, it's like a gigantic wedding. And what he does for unbelievers and for the wicked, it's like a gigantic war. Now, weddings are exciting. Weddings are wonderful. Wars are horrible. Wars are dangerous. Wars are things that we try to avoid if we possibly can because of all the bloodshed and and the violence and destruction that happens, the collateral damage that happens. But both things have to happen when Christ returns because when he comes, yes, he's going to elevate the people who have been oppressed, the saints of God, the believers, the church that have been persecuted and martyred and harassed and hassled and uh, chased down and imprisoned. And all of this has been going on during the tribulation period, all the horrible times of earth, earth's history as well, where the church has been persecuted. He's going to lift them up and exalt them, the followers of Christ, and be joined to them for all eternity. And he's going to bring his final judgment like a war a battle that, where he's undefeated, this battle comes, this war comes, and he defeats the enemies of God and the enemies of his people once and for all. And as we read through this, we're not reading this for the purpose of, yeah, that's exciting, although I hope you get excited. I hope you get thrilled. I hope you get goosebumps and you have a joy and a confidence in your soul, but it's bigger than that. This is not just a, a, a fantasy story that's being you know, the final chapter. This is not a great novel that's the final chapter that that it's all coming to an end. It's bigger than that. You and I need this today. 
This may be thousands of years from now when this is fulfilled. It could all start coming together tomorrow. Either way, we need this today because we are constantly being faced with two big threats. We're constantly being lured away to idolatry where we worship other things and trust in other things and rely on other things instead of giving our heart, mind, soul, and strength to the living God who created us. We're constantly being lured away from loving and serving him. And we're constantly being persecuted and harassed and pressured by the culture around us. And even when you say, okay, I'm not suffering persecution, I'm not either. But I find myself afraid to speak up and afraid to witness, afraid to be bold because I'm worried about what other people think. And that's a kind of peer pressure, which is a prelude to persecution, external force and pressure, oppression that keeps people from speaking up. So the challenge is, is that we, we need to remain true and confident and committed to Christ no matter what. Revelation chapter 19, as we read about the second coming of Jesus and him coming in power and glory, this wedding and a war that we're going to read about, when we see this, when we read this, it gives us confidence to stay committed because he's conquered. I can be confident. I can stay committed. I can have the courage to stay committed because Christ has conquered. He's victorious and his victory is at hand. So take your Bibles, please. Let's look to, at Revelation chapter 19. And I want to talk about this wedding in a war. This wedding in a war. All right. And this is all that takes place when Christ returns. And I want you to listen carefully as, as I read this, please. <clears throat> then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. 
And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their, with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is God's word. So we have here at the return of Christ, the scene of a wedding and the scene of a war. Let's talk about the wedding first. That's kind of fun and exciting. I was at a wedding last weekend, and it was a wonderful affair. It was just a beautiful outdoor wedding. The bride looked so lovely, the groom and, and all the attendants, everybody looked so lovely. The food was great. There was fun dancing. It was a wonderful, wonderful day. It really was. It was a great celebration. And I know people celebrate for lots of reasons at weddings. Some people celebrate because the, you know, they've been dreaming about this wedding day. The bride was maybe, maybe the groom was, and, and they're finally together and they're celebrating that. My daughter's getting married this year. I'm celebrating that. We're excited for her. Somebody else is finally going to have responsibility for her. And I'm, that's kind of <laughs> cool thing. And uh, she's here today, so I can tease her about that a little bit. But uh, you know what? We're excited for other reasons because this is something that... Uh, you know, God has led her to, and we believe in, and we're supporting, and we believe in this young couple's future, and God's hand is clearly on them, and we support what's going on in their lives, and we're excited about that. That's all involved when it comes to a wedding, but here you see the people of God that are in glory, they're celebrating. In fact, there's such a cheer going up. In fact, do you notice there in verse 6 all the words that are used to describe how loud it is? It's like booming thunder. It's like standing along the beach when big waves are coming in and you can't even hear yourself talk out loud because the noise of the roar of the waves crashing on the sand is so loud. It's like when you're on the sidelines in a football stadium and there's 100,000 fans cheering for a touchdown. You can't even hear yourself think it's so loud. And all this imagery of nature celebrating and people celebrating, all of this is going on and you see what they're celebrating and what the cheer is all about. Hallelujah, they say. And remember, that's a Hebrew word that just simply means praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh, the God who created everything and holds it all together. Give him praise because he's worthy. Why? For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. He's in charge. He's the ruler. How do you know he's the ruler? Look what's happening. Look what's unfolding before your very eyes. Look at this wedding that's taking place in verse seven. It says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It's a wedding day. When Christ returns, the people of God are going to be joined with him forever. and It is a huge wedding celebration. 
The groom is coming for his bride. Now you might be saying, well, how do you know the bride is the church? How do you know it's not somebody else? You know, who is the bride of, of Christ? Well, when we read in Scripture, we see in many locations in the New Testament this analogy or description, a metaphor, if you want to call it that, that of the people of God being called the bride, being called a virgin that's been betrothed or engaged to Christ. We see that in Ephesians chapter 5, very famous passage, where there's guidelines for how a Christian home is to function and, and, and live and move. And there a husband is called on to love and cherish and care for his wife, just like Christ sacrificed his life to save the church, to save those who believe in him. So, so Christ is a picture of how a husband is supposed to act. He's to love and cherish his wife and live sacrificially to care for her, protect her and provide for her and put her first. The church is used as the picture of what a wife is to be like. And she is to love and honor her husband like a wife is to love and honor her husband. She is to do it like the church is to love and honor Christ by following Christ's lead, by yielding to his authority, by letting him lead her. It's not that, uh, that he's a door, you know, she's a doormat that he walks all over, not that at all. Christ doesn't do that to his church, but rather she realizes that everything she needs in Christ and she gives herself to him. And it's a picture of a, of a bride giving herself to the groom, just as the groom is giving himself to the bride as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Paul, or rather verse 2, Paul says that he's actually kind of jealous. He's jealous because he's looking at the Corinthians and they've kind of been wandering away from Christ spiritually, kind of wandering away from him. And he says, you know what? I've, I've arranged for you to be married to Christ. I've arranged for you to be engaged to him and you're being unfaithful to him. I've set this up that you as Christians, you as a church, that you should be married to Christ and have a relationship with him for all eternity. And now you're walking away from that, and I'm jealous about that. These passages and others talk about that the bride of Christ is the church, the people of God, the people who trust in him, the saints. They're the ones who are his bride. And what's being celebrated here, what the, the, the rejoicing, the loud roar of, of cheering and celebrating and praising that's going on is the fact that the people of God are joined to their Lord and Savior for all eternity. They're married to him. And they share his life and love always and forever. And the picture here is, is that it says that the, the bride it was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And you know, whether it's a big wedding or a small wedding, the bride always looks lovely. Always. She's gotten her hair done. She's maybe got special makeup on. She's got a beautiful dress. Uh, even if it's a very low-key wedding, she, she looks beautiful. It's a special day. She's, she's going to be married to her, her husband and he's taking her as, as his wife. And so there they are, and, and, and it says that she's been dressed with fine linen, and it's, it's shining, it's sparkling, it's, it's beautiful and bright and elegant in every way. It's glorious and glamorous in every way. And then John just kind of makes an editorial comment here, but I want you to understand, what is the, the wedding dress that she's wearing? 
And he says, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, she's clothed herself with righteousness. The context of the book of Revelation is, is that the righteousness that he's referring to, the righteous deeds, he's talking about her obedience to God's command, her faithfulness in the midst of hardship, her willingness to suffer for Christ and be loyal to Christ even if she dies in the process. She is committed to him and devoted to him even when she loses her life in obedience and faith. She's willing to do that. And you think about it, a gal on her wedding day might go to the spa and primp and pamper and do all these things, get her hair done, her nails done, go get her wedding dress, get all this done, and it's, it's a big elaborate affair to get her ready for that. But what gets us ready to meet Christ on our wedding day with Him is, are we willing to be faithful to Him even if it costs us everything? Are we willing to be devoted to Him, committed to Him, no matter what? You see, Revelation was written for the Christians of the first century just like it's written for us. And it's not just talking about something that's way off in the future, although it's that. It's to inspire us and challenge us and give us courage today to stay committed. Why? Because Christ is coming back. And that confidence of him coming and accepting us and welcoming us and joining himself to us and us to him for all eternity, that should give us courage. Courage to stay committed. And I want to think about this on just one more level here. This is really, really important. Just zoom out a little bit from Revelation chapter 19. The immediate context here in Revelation, we've just spent two chapters, 17 and 18, talking about the other woman, the harlot, Babylon, talking about that part of the Antichrist kingdom that is constantly soliciting and seducing us to betray Jesus and go with them. Find other gods and goddesses that we would worship, other idols that we would yield ourselves to. And Babylon is saying, look, I'll give you all the pleasure and joy you want, just come sleep with me. Babylon is saying, just give in to me and I'll take away the pressure of persecution. I'll give you power. I'll give you control. You're poor, come to me, and I'll give you wealth. I'll make you prosperous. I'll give you these material goods. Babylon is promising all of these things if we would just worship these other idols in our culture. If we would give in to the things that we think give us security. If we would just give in to the things that we think will bring us pleasure. If we would just give in to the things that we believe will give us power. You're saying, I don't worship idols. I'm not necessarily talking about religious idols in a sense of what we see in other religions and traditions of they bow before a certain statue or fig, stature or figure or icon. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the gods and goddesses, the deities and the, the idols of our age. Money, power, success, pleasure, immorality, all of these things, money, sex, and power, that's what it's all about. And those are the idols of our age. And you say, I, I don't know that I worship idols. Listen, if any of those things are taken away, does it crush you? Does it devastate you when those, if your business failed, would it devastate you? If your children were taken from you, would it crush you? If your marriage failed, would it crush you? 
If you lost your health, you get a diagnosis from the doctor this week that you have cancer and you're on death row. Would that crush you? The thing is, is those, the fact that we would feel crushed by those things is an indication that we've put too much faith and too much stock in those things instead of understanding that God's in control and even if I do get cancer or even if my marriage does fall apart or even if I do lose my job, God is still there and he's my security. He's the one who really loves me. He's the one who gives me peace. He's the one who's my lasting joy. He's the one who's, who's truly everything I need. And the irony of this passage, when you compare the wedding day of the bride of Christ to her Lord and Savior, the groom, Jesus, and you compare that to what the harlot is offering, she wants to sell you security, joy, peace, and happiness, and pleasure. If you have Jesus, you've got all that stuff already. You don't, have to need, you don't need to go buy it. You don't have to give in to the solicitation for it because everything you need is in Christ. So that's why I think right after this episode of the people cheering for the wedding of Jesus with his bride, there's this funny little account of John. He's so overwhelmed by what he sees that he wants to bow down and worship the angel, which I'm thinking, why in the heck is this right here in the middle? And John's wanting to bow down in front of the angel, and I get the idea he falls right down on the ground, and the angel says, whoa, 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 buddy picks him up, stands him up, brushes him off, and says, listen, you must not do that because I'm your fellow servant of Jesus with you and all your brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to worship God only. Why do we worship God only? He's all we need. He's the groom who's coming back for his bride. He's the the groom of the bride of Christ, the church. And everything you're longing for, everything you're looking for, is found in Jesus and not the idols of this world. Worship God. Trust in Him. We can have the courage to do that because Christ is conquered. He's coming back and His victory is at hand. And that courage comes from knowing that He has conquered all of our enemies and knowing that we are going to be joined with Him for all eternity. So that's one facet of the return of Christ. There's this beautiful wedding that we're joined with Christ for all eternity. Now, the big question is, are you a member of the body of Christ? Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you've never done that, you're not gonna be part of the wedding, you're gonna be part of the war. So make sure that you've put your trust in Christ and that you belong to him. Now notice what happens then, beginning in verse 11. John says he sees heaven open, And whenever you hear that little phrase in Revelation, it's always the idea of God is leaving his heavenly throne. He's personally intervening and he's entering, interrupting human history at that time. And he's going to act in a personal way. Get that? So he sees heaven opening. It's like the curtains are parting. The window is open. The door is opening. And here he comes marching out. And he's stepping into human history. It's like an invasion. In fact, that's exactly what it is. Righteousness is invading earth and going to fight against and destroy all wickedness. John says, I saw heaven open and look, there's a white horse. He was absolutely surprised to see this come out. And the one who was sitting, the rider on the horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. But then notice verse 12, it says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. 
And right away, that's a clue that indicates to you and me that he's talking about Jesus who he saw in Revelation chapter 1 in power and glory because his eyes were like a flame of fire. They were full of fury, the wrath of God against wickedness, that penetrating gaze, that seeing in the darkness and knowing the truth, these eyes that are like a flame of fire. He's called faithful and true because that's who Jesus is. You can always count on him. He will always keep his word. His promises are fulfilled in him. He does that. You can trust in him. He, in righteousness, is coming to judge wickedness and evil, and he will fight against them and make war. This is not a case when somebody, we know they're guilty and they get off the hook. They get away scot-free. Not that at all. They're found guilty and judgment comes, and it's unavoidable. It's inescapable. The judgment comes. And it says he's going to make war against wickedness as well. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Notice that on his head were many diadems. All these crowns on top of his head. What does that mean? It means that he now rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. He's going to be called King of Kings in a few moments. And there he is ruling over all the kingdoms of the earth. And it says that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And I, I have to admit, that's probably the most cryptic phrase in this entire chapter. I don't really know what it means, but what I think it means simply is that when eternity starts and this battle is done and we enter the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus will have a name that will be so wonderful, so glorious, and so appropriate for that new beginning and that new start of all eternity, and it will be revealed at that time. We were told back in chapter 2 that the followers of God who overcome, who are faithful to Jesus no matter what, they get Christ's new name. So we'll know that too. It'll be part of our lives as well. And that'll be exciting to know at that time. Notice how he's dressed. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, this bright red robe. And, on his, and his name by which he is called at that time, he's the word of God. He's the one who fulfills, fulfills all the promises of God. He comes to do exactly what God has promised, what he's commanded, what he's declared. He's the fulfillment of all that. And not only that, he's not coming by himself. He comes with the armies of heaven who are arrayed in fine linen, bright and pure, and they're following him on white horses. And the picture that John is trying to paint here is he describes Jesus coming back to earth. This is not some sort of coming like Jesus at Christmas time at Bethlehem, the little baby in an obscure village on the backside of Judea in a little manger, this little barn that he's born in. There he is laying in a feeding trough with donkeys and sheep as the first attendants along with his mom and his dad. It's not something like that. It's something glorious and terrifying at the same time. He comes marching out to battle on this white horse. And he's followed by the armies of heaven. And they're all wearing white. And the picture here that John is painting, it's very similar to a Roman general coming back to the capital after a great victory. And instead of wearing his battle fatigues, he has a, Ro a Roman tunic, a white tunic and sash on. And he's riding in his chariot and he's receiving the salutes and the honor of all the crowds who are cheering. And his soldiers 
are following him and, and, and the prisoners of war that were captured are following him and everyone is cheering and everybody is celebrating because this general has conquered them all and he's coming victoriously. And the thing that is so funny and interesting to me as I read about the return of Christ, Jesus is coming as the great victor and his armies dressed like they're victorious and the battle hasn't even been fought yet. It's so certain. It's so guaranteed that the victory has been won. There's, no, there's nothing in doubt. There's no hesitation that Jesus Christ is coming as the conquering king and he has already won the battle. Well, how did he already win the battle? How could that be? Well, that's what he was doing on the cross. That's what he was doing when he gave his life for you and for me. He was fighting Satan. He was fighting sin. He was fighting death. And on that cross, as he hung there by those nails, he was dying for you and me to conquer sin, death, and the devil. And when he was buried in the tomb, and when he was raised from the dead, and when he ascended into glory, all of those were actions of a victorious conqueror destroying our greatest enemies. And now, the climax of it all is Jesus is coming back to rescue his church, to marry that church for all eternity, and to conquer her enemies and his enemies once and for all. The victory was won at the cross in the empty tomb, but it's finalized and realized for all eternity at the second coming of Jesus. And he's coming in power and glory as the great victor. John describes Jesus even further. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll speak the word and that's his weapon. It's a broad sword that he's describing, something like from Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, something like that, a long sword that would maybe take two hands to hold and to swing. It was the symbol of Roman justice, that Rome has the authority to execute whatever punishment is necessary. And Jesus is saying here, you think Caesar has authority? I've got all authority. And I have the authority with which to speak the word and strike down all of my enemies just by speaking the word. It says also that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. The rod of iron, the, the rod that he's talking about is what a shepherd would carry. Now, not that long stick with the curved end, you know, the shepherd's crook, not that. But a shepherd would often carry a billy club or something like that, like a small baseball bat. And the, design, the, the purpose of that was that was a weapon to fight off any of the predators, robbers or lions or bears or anything like that that would attack, wolves that would attack the sheep. And that club was used to fight them off any of the predators. And here's Jesus coming back in power and glory and he has a rod of iron. It's not gonna break if he hits something hard. He's going to crush them with this rod of iron. The predators of his church. Those that are attacking the church, those that oppress the church, all of the wicked, the enemies that are seeking to destroy the church, the people of God, the saints of God. He comes with that iron rod to crush them. Like Psalm 2 says, the prophecy of the Son of God, the King's Son coming and crushing those that are wicked that fight against and oppress His people. He defends his people and delivers them from these enemies with his great victory. 
It says also that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And in, and in chapter 14, 15, 16, we see allusions to this winepress, references to this winepress, this final judgment. There's this great harvest on earth and all these grapes are gathered and they're thrown into this, this vat, this, this trough, and the people would take their shoes and sandals off and they'd get there and they'd actually stomp the grapes and smush them and the juice of the grapes would come out and it would overflow and he says that this is a picture of the judgment of God. It is so complete, it is so fueled by his fury and his anger against sin that the, 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 the juice of the grape, like blood, it spills out and it covers all the land of Palestine. It does that. Again, I don't know if that's a literal statement of how much blood there is, but it's certainly a picture of how complete and total is the judgment and destruction of the enemies. God is coming through Jesus and he's going to stomp the grapes and bring his judgment and smash the enemies and crush them once and for all. And he's doing this because God, out of his great love, hates sin and fights against sin and wickedness and destroys them. When they've had an opportunity to turn to him and repent, they refuse to do that. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I get the idea this is either like a sash that's coming down that says that and kind of goes down to a side, or maybe this is on the sword that he's hanging from his belt and sash and on that sword it says King of Kings, Lord of Lords, but there it is, everybody sees it. Everybody knows that there's no one that has authority greater than Jesus. He's coming back in power and glory. He's coming back, his victory is at hand and therefore we can have the courage to stay committed because he's conquered and is conquering as well. So then the thing is, is when John actually gets around to describing the battle, he backs up a little bit and he kind of paints a very gruesome scene. This is really ugly, gross, and gory. But it's consistent with all the great descriptions of battles in the past. When Gettysburg, the three-day battle in 1863 was over, of course people heard the cannon 40, 50 miles away. But for weeks, people smelled all the rotting horses and bodies from the battlefield in the hot summer July heat. Just the, the smell of it, the, the pungency, the putridness of it. It, it, it. it turns our stomach. But here, listen to this description of the battle. There's an invitation to another banquet, not a wedding banquet, but a war banquet. In verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, John writes, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. This is, this is very ironic, I hope you catch this. Come for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men and horses and riders of all men, both free and slave and small and great. I want you to come, you birds. Come and eat all you want of the corpses of the enemies of God that have been slain on the battlefield. From the highest of the high to the lowest of the low, from the generals to the buck privates, you come and eat these dead bodies. You come and pick the flesh off their bones. You see, he's describing that the battle is going to be so complete, 
so overwhelming, the enemy will be so utterly defeated that they won't even have the ability to bury any of the dead. The defeat will be utterly and totally complete and humiliating in the process. And so he says, come do this. And then John describes the battle. I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was seated on the throne, on, excuse me, on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, the one who had tricked people into worshiping the Antichrist and taking his mark. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the picture here is that the battle begins and Jesus speaks the word and the enemies are already defeated. The battle's over before a shot is fired. And the Antichrist, that world dictator, is seized. And his henchmen, the, the false prophet that led everybody astray to worship the Antichrist instead of God, these two are thrown alive into the lake of fire. And I know that that sounds kind of ironic, a lake that's full of fire, but that's exactly what he describes, this place of burning and suffering. And they are there eternally, they're there in full consciousness, and they are tormented, and it doesn't end. We'll see a description of that in chapter 20 next week. They're judged. They're getting the judgment that they deserve, claiming to be God, demanding that everyone worshiping, worship him as the Antichrist, leading the entire world astray, persecuting and oppressing the people of God, hassling and harassing and harming them in that way. They're thrown into the lake of fire, and in verse 21, the rest were slain by the sword, the rest of the armies. They were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of the him who was sitting on the horse. And the birds were gorged with their flesh. They did exactly what they were invited to do. All those vultures came and picked the bones clean. John sees the battle as if it's already happened. It's so certain. Victory is so sure. Christ is coming quickly. And his victory is at hand. And because his victory is at hand, you and I can have the courage we need to stay committed because he's conquered. He's the one who's victorious. The battle he won at the cross in the empty tomb is realized here at the battle of Armageddon. That's what's being described here, this final last battle. I want you to just think about this as we wind this up. When Jesus came the first time, on Palm Sunday, what was he riding? A donkey. He came with humility and meekness. And he was doing that, and yet everybody worshipped him. That is, until Friday, when everybody turned on him and demanded that he be crucified. And he was there, nailed to the cross, condemned to die in our place. When Jesus was condemned, he wore a crown of thorns. But here he's wearing many crowns. Not just thorns, he's wearing crowns of all the kingdoms of earth because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. But he is king of kings and lord of lords because he wore the crown of thorns for you and for me. When Pilate was interrogating Jesus, interviewing him, trying to find out whether Jesus was really worthy of dying, 
And Pilate asks him, don't you know they're making all these accusations? Why are you keeping silent? And Jesus said, don't you know I can call down 12 legions of angels? 12,000 angels will come and fight for me right now. But I don't do that. I'm here all by myself. He went to the cross alone to die for you alone, rejected alone. He did that for you alone so that when he would rise and come back in power and glory, he would lead those armies from heaven. And he would come and will come and conquer every foe once and for all. Sin, death, and the devil, the very enemies that oppose us today, the very enemies of his kingdom will be defeated once and for all. And think about what Jesus is wearing when he comes back in power and glory. A robe dipped in blood. Bible scholars debate, whose blood? What blood? The blood of the martyrs? The blood of his enemies? What if it's his own blood? The blood on the cross that was shed for you and for me. What if he's saying, I'm coming back in power and glory to conquer all these foes because I have already defeated them through my death on the cross and through my resurrection. I've given myself for them, for this victory. I am coming to claim my prize, my bride, this earth. I'm claiming it all because I won it. I conquered. It is mine. I went to the cross and I shed my blood, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. He gave his life for us so now we can surrender to him and give ourselves to him. You see, when Christ comes back, there'll be a wedding like no other and there'll be a war to end all wars. And because he's coming back, to take his people to be with them forever. They don't have to give in to idolatry. They don't have to give in to worship anything else. They can worship him because he is everything they need. Jesus is enough and more than enough. That's what he means by the abundant life. I've come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I've got everything you could possibly want, dream of, fantasize about. I've got it all if you've got me. And because he's coming back in power and glory to defeat all the enemies, I can stand true. You can stand strong. You can have courage in the face of persecution. When that day comes, when people will actually force us physically to deny our faith, we don't have to deny our faith. We can stay committed and true. We can be bold and brave to speak up for him. We can take a stand and be faithful no matter what. Worshiping God and witnessing for him because Christ is is the conqueror. He conquered at the cross. He's conquering when he returns. And because he has conquered, I can have courage and you can have courage. And because he gives us his courage by his victory, we can stay committed. We can have hope to hang on because Christ has won the victory for us. So I wanna ask you, have you accepted the invitation to go to that wedding. He extends it to you if you've never trusted Christ, that you trust in him today. Rely on him. But if you've already done that, do you see that that courage can be yours because Christ has conquered?
I pray that you would put your hope in him because he's made you victorious in him. Let me pray with you. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this opportunity that we can be together. I just say with all the saints, hallelujah. We praise you, we give you glory, Lord, and praise your name. Thank you that that day will come when all the saints of God, all the angels of God will march back in glory with him and will share his victory. And I ask that you would help us today to have the courage to stay committed because Jesus, you've conquered. Thank you. I pray that you'd bless my brothers and sisters in Christ, my friends who are here today. May we always walk in that victory and that courage. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.